Thanks, Darren. Morning, everybody. Uh, my name's Kirk, one of the ministers here at St. John's. Great to be speaking to you today on Palm Sunday. Uh, although, if you're observant, you would have noticed that there was no palms mentioned in the Bible reading. And, like, that's the Bible reading for Palm Sunday, like the story of Jesus entering Jerusalem. Uh, but no palms mentioned. Uh, partly that's just because there's four versions of this particular story in the Bible. So we have four biographies of Jesus called Matthew, Mark, Luke and John and some of them mention palms and some of them don't because they, they all tell, the, tell this particular story. Um, so yeah, palms are like, I guess, a non-essential part of this, this particular part of the Bible but they do make for nice decorations, don't they? So, um, but yeah, we're looking at this, this story together and uh, there's going to be two themes that I really want to pick up on today from the story of Jesus entering Jerusalem. It's mainly from the last part of the passage uh, the themes of mourning and of hope. I just want to see how that plays out and, and, and how Jesus interacts with those two themes uh, in this passage. But let's set the scene a little bit. Let's sort of picture what's going on in this story in our heads. It's approximately 2,000 years ago and the location is an outer suburb of the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, of course, known in modern times as... Well, Jerusalem is still there. Um, looks a bit different. Uh, buildings have been updated, uh, but it's, it's still a city. So uh, it is the capital of the nation of Israel. And the person of interest on this particular day is Jesus, this great miracle worker and teacher. Many believed him to be the actual and only son of God. And as he's entering the city, as he's riding through these outer suburbs to get into the city, he's riding on a young donkey. And this is you might go, well, what's the significance of this? And we spend a lot of time in this story sort of hearing how they got the donkey and all that sort of stuff. Well, in those times, a donkey was a peaceful animal. Okay? So if, if Jesus was approaching the city to conquer it with an army, he wouldn't be riding a donkey. I mean, it's probably like, like if you put a horse next to a donkey, which are you going to choose if you're going to take over a city? You're going to choose the horse. You know, they're the tough guys of the animal kingdom compared to the... Don donkeys are like that friendly guy at school who was just nice to everyone, you know, just got along with everyone. There's, there's the donkeys. And so, very peaceful animal. He's not coming to the city to start a fight. He's not come, coming to the city to sort of overthrow people. He's coming in peace. And he's got a big group of people with him, but they're not carrying weapons. They're not grumpy. They're not protesting. They're celebrating. They're in a good mood. So again, it's not an aggressive sort of crowd that's coming in. Uh, and they're very, this crowd of people, very impressed with Jesus and they refer to him as the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And to show their respect for Jesus, they take off their coats and they put them down in front of the donkey. A bit like we would put a red carpet out the front of a building to, you know, for a special visitor or a special event, just showing their respect. Uh, and this palm branch has been waved as well, Palm Sunday. Uh, there's something spiritual going on here as well. Um, Jesus says that if people weren't calling out their praise to God and if they weren't celebrating him being the king if people weren't doing that then like other bits of nature would sub in like he says if, if the people keep quiet then the rocks would cry out this is in verse 40 uh, and as if to say like with Jesus entering the city uh, this place, this time the natural order of things is for the world itself to praise God and to celebrate Jesus that's what's happening at this particular time. It's a very spiritual thing. And so it's a mood of celebration. 
But then the mood changes when Jesus gets closer to the city. Uh, And Jesus actually starts to cry. Now, I'm aware that some people cry more than others. You know, some people it's like, uh, you're watching a movie and the slightest sad thing happens and the tears start and you just love sort of crying in movies. And other people, maybe a bit more like me, where you reserve tears for, for, for really significant stories, really significant moments. All right, so the last story that I cried in response to was actually a video game. It was called That Dragon Cancer. And it was a story made by a Christian family, a, a game made by a Christian family, and they interactively told the story of their son, who, a young son who had cancer and who died from the disease. And so this connected with me in a lot of ways. Very well told story. You're sympathizing for the family situation. My children are approximately the age of the son as the, the story that was going on. And it just, it just pressed all my buttons. It, and, it, and it was like this was a very significant story for me. And so I was by myself when I was playing it. But if you were there, you would have seen the tears when you're gone. That is a significant emotional moment for Kirk. And similarly for Jesus, we actually only see him shed tears twice, specifically mentioned anyway in the Bible. That's here in this story heading into Jerusalem and when his friend Lazarus dies. Now there's a few other moments where maybe Jesus was crying. It's not specifically mentioned. I'm not saying he only cried twice in his life. But what, we are, what I am saying is when the Bible mentions that Jesus was weeping, it's we definitely need to take notice. This is a very significant emotional response that Jesus is having. And um, as he's crying, he's kind of speaking to the city. Uh, And so I need to give you a bit of background on the city just to catch you up if you're not familiar. So Israel was God's chosen nation. You can read about this in the Old Testament. And their mission was to be a blessing to all the other nations. A mission given to them by God. This is your purpose. And if you were a member of Israel, you were Jewish or a Jew. That's how, how you would refer to yourself. And Jerusalem was the capital of the city of, uh, of the nation of Israel. So it's full of Jews. I think I said... Uh, um, and at this point, of Romans. Okay, Because so, Rome had come in and conquered the city... And so, yeah, still a huge Jewish population, but there's a bunch of Romans there as well. And so Jesus is looking at this city, this chosen city of God, and he says in verse 42, have a look at it, he says, if you, even you, city of God's people, had only known of this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. He's upset at the way the city has responded to this mission that God's given them. And then he goes on to predict what's going to happen to that city in verse 43. He says, The days will come upon you when your enemies, and remember, he's still crying when he says this, when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and your children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. This is a description basically of the city getting attacked by an army. And that's exactly what happened about 40 years later. 70 AD, the Roman army attacked Jerusalem, smashed up the place. There was a lot of death and there was a lot of destruction. And so this prediction that Jesus made uh, came true. And historians generally agree, yes, this this did happen. And Jesus' reason for this in verse 44 is because the people of the city 
did not recognise the time of God's coming to them. Now if you read the New Testament, you'll see that well, that wouldn't be a surprise to you because Jesus often got in arguments, uh, disagreements with Jewish believers. There was plenty of debates that went on. Uh, he was Jewish himself, so it wasn't like a, 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 a racial you know, disagreement or something, just disagreement on beliefs and how to follow God. And they didn't believe that Jesus was a prophet. Often they said, no, you're not a prophet. They certainly, a lot of people did not believe that Jesus was God's son. These are two things that he claimed to be. And so as Jesus enters the city, again, a disagreement with some Jewish people pops up and it's the group called the Pharisees who have gotten a lot of confrontations with Jesus already and up until this point. And they don't like it. They don't like what Jesus is doing. They don't like that people are celebrating him as king here. They don't uh, like a lot of what Jesus has been teaching. And so they say to him in verse 39, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Rebuking means just tell them off. Keep them quiet. You know, calm this whole thing down. Now, no doubt that was annoying for Jesus <laughs> that this happened. Um, but when he's upset and he's having this emotional response, He's not just having an emotional response to this little group saying that at that particular time. He's having this response to this history of God's people rejecting God's messengers. And this history that we can read about in the Old Testament, well, yes, sometimes Israel was a blessing to the nations. Often they were not. And often they they weren't interested, they didn't want to take on that mission. And I find Jesus' response to this, this history and what, what's going on at the time and what's happened in the past, I find it fascinating. You know, he's upset about the people rejecting him. And so basically what he does is before he goes into the city, he speaks against the city and he predicts its downfall. And once you've done that, wouldn't you think the logical thing would be to not go in? Like, wouldn't you go to another city? Like, if, if this city is out to get you and it's doomed... I mean, Cairo's not that far and it's got one of the seven wonders of the world. Why not go there? Check that out. Like, why are you going to go into this city that is out to get you? It's, it's an interesting decision for him. But he does go in and the city is out to get him and they do get him. They, they get him arrested and, and executed and he dies on a cross. So even as he... But then, you know, if you fast forward to, verse, uh, to Luke 23... And Jesus is on the cross, he's nailed to the cross, he's close to death. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He offers them love and forgiveness in that moment, even as he's receiving death and violence and abuse from the people. So it's this interesting contrast we've got here with Jesus, where he's mourning the city and he's predicting its downfall, and yet he's entering the city and he's loving the city and he's forgiving the people of the city. You've got mourning and hope together here at the end of Jesus' life. And it's a challenging thing for us to apply to our own lives. You know, because if you're a Christian, uh, you're a follower of Jesus, we're meant to imitate Jesus. We're meant to do what Jesus did. Now, it's easy enough when Jesus said, we should be kind to children. I mean, that's, that's a fairly easy one. It's like, okay, I'll be kind to children. Or Jesus says, hey, here's, here's a great prayer. It's the Lord's Prayer. We should pray this. And we go, yeah, we'll do that. We'll put it on the screen and we'll all pray it together every Sunday. Easy. But how do we, how do we 
imitate Jesus when it comes to people who reject the Christian faith, who reject what we believe or who reject Jesus himself. How should we respond in that situation? Now I'm going to assume that everyone here will have family or friends right now who are rejecting the call that we all have to follow Jesus. Maybe you've shared your faith with some friends and they're just not interested for one reason or another. Maybe they've even criticised you for it or teased you for it. Uh, Or maybe you're a parent or your grandparent, you have adult children who, um, when they were kids, you you raised them, bring them to church, but currently they're not part of a church community and they're not following Jesus. Or maybe you've got siblings or, or parents uh, who are not Christians and again, they're not, they're not interested, they're not, they're not responding uh, to you sharing your faith with them. Or maybe, and if you're honest, maybe at the moment Jesus isn't welcome in your life. You know, you're someone who, perhaps you're here investigating or perhaps you're questioning your faith and, and maybe actually you're not following Jesus yourself. Whatever the case, How are we meant to imitate Jesus in these situations? What is our practical response? I want to suggest that we need to avoid doing just one of the two things. We want to avoid just mourning and just sort of being down in the dumps and upset. And we want to avoid just being hopeful and sort of just being positive, like having a positive mindset and and avoid pretending that there isn't some mourning that needs to be done. If we're going to truly imitate Jesus, we need to have mourning and hope together. And that won't be super straightforward as far as how we apply that. We'll talk about that in a moment. But that's what we need to do. We need to have both. Because I think what we can say from the way Jesus responds here is that it is good and right to mourn those who are not following Jesus, who reject Jesus. So I'll give you an example. Um, A number of years ago, I was sharing my faith a lot with a really close friend of mine. Every time we caught up, we would talk about Jesus for at least an hour. You know, like it was just to and fro, he'd always have more questions. It's going great. And so eventually I asked him to a church service that I thought would be appropriate for him. And he came along. At the end of that church service, he said he'd become a Christian. And it was the best. And so I went home and I was writing in a journal each night at that point. And I wrote in the journal that that was the best day of my life. My friend had become a Christian. I'd become a Christian not that long before. Uh, this was just the best. It was great. Uh, but he's not a Christian today. He didn't last 12 months. Um, uh, you know, he came to church a little bit and joined my small group for a little while, um, but he didn't follow it through. And that's about 10 years ago, I'd say, and it's still very disappointing for me that that is the way it's played out. And I'm encouraged by the passage because I go, is it okay for me to be upset about that? Yes. I'd be imitating Jesus if I did that. Is it okay to be angry about that? I think it is. I think there's an element of anger that Jesus has about this. Is it okay for me to talk to God about it and to tell him how much it burns when I think about the disappointment? Yes. And I know that it burns him too, so we're going to have something in common when we talk about it. Mourning that situation uh, is what Jesus did. So that's me as a follower of Jesus. I should do that. And I think it's good for my soul when I do it. Um, I will say, though, that I don't think I have mourned that situation very well. I think most of the time what I've done is tried to forget about it. Because when I think about it, it's disappointing. And I don't like feeling disappointed. And sometimes I question whether I 
was a pro part of the problem, you know, like did I, you know, you, and the, all these thoughts run through your head, should I have done something differently, you know, all this sort of stuff. It's just easier not to think about that stuff. But it's 10 years and it's, it's not getting any better, right? So what I've been learning in the last few months in the lead up to this talk and then, you know, it's hit me in the face preparing this talk is that I think sometimes what we need to do is just wade into disappointment and talk about it with God and mourn it and, and actually do that properly. As Australians, we're not very good at mourning. Probably one of the worst nations in the world at doing public mourning you know, and grieving and that sort of thing. We, we tend to be pretty rubbish at it. We tend to bottle up our feelings. So, yeah, but Jesus is like in the front of this huge crowd and just letting it all hang out you know, emotionally. And so I've been challenged by that. It's like, yeah, I think I need to spend more time mourning this situation with my friend and some other situations like that. To be clear, though, mourning doesn't include, like, it, it includes sort of feeling sad and feeling bad about it. It doesn't include, like, taking those bad feelings out on the person. Okay, so it would not be okay for me to cut my mate off. You know, go, that's it. If you're not going to follow through on your commitment, then you're out of here, you know, make him pay for his bad decision. That's not an acceptable thing for me to do because that would not be imitating Jesus. And yet, sadly, I think because of the disappointment that comes from these situations, sometimes we do take it out on people. We do take it and we, and we, and we express our disappointment in problematic ways. Um, it's, I think it's because if you're a Christian, I'm going to assume that what you believe about Jesus is like at the heart of your identity, of who you are, right? And then when someone says, nah, don't think that's true, then, you know, it's very personal when somebody knocks that back. And as much as they're probably more rejecting Jesus than they are rejecting you, it still hits us, right? And so we can have these sort of reflex reactions which can be problematic. And I just want to share a few with you that I've noticed either in myself or in other people that I think we need to be just aware of and avoiding. Uh, they come in two categories, pushing people away and forcing people to come close. So I'll explain that as we go. So I have known people that when somebody close to them stops being a Christian, they completely cut them off. Right? So they actually say, um, if, you, if you're not going to listen, if you're not, if you, not going to pay attention, then you're out. You're out of the will. Uh, I'm not going to talk to you. I'm not going to return your calls. I'm going to unfriend you on Facebook. And... It, it, and and this, this does happen. In fact, my mum seems to keep meeting people who have done this to their adult children. Like, one of their kids, you know, they don't, for whatever reason, they reject Christianity in some way or another. Bam, they're gone. They are cut off. They are not getting talked to by their parents at all. And I don't know if this is just my mum meeting, coincidentally meeting multiple people under those circumstances, but it does, that sort of thing does happen. Now, probably a more common way that we push people away is not quite that dramatic, uh, but still kind of doing the same thing. As that is, instead of cutting them off, we just give them our relational leftovers. You know, so it's like, I feel disappointed when I'm hanging out with you because you've rejected what I believe at the core. So I'll still be friendly to you, and if we're at a party together, I'll say hello, but I'm not going to try and catch up with you. I'm not going to keep investing in your life because I just feel disappointed when I'm near you. And so you just sort of let that friendship drift and, you know, take its course and, oh, if we, never, if we don't see each other for a year, that'll be all right. And we just, you know, and just sort of defer it for a bit 
hope that it will go away or get better or something. Now, I don't want to insult your intelligence, but when Christians push people away, it doesn't help them become Christians. <laughs> like, it doesn't help them go, oh, people don't go, oh, gee, I've really lost touch with that friend or they've cut me off. Maybe I'll follow Jesus. It doesn't work that way. Like it, 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 it's just nonsensical. It's not a good method for sharing our faith. So we need to acknowledge when we're doing it, it's about protecting ourselves. It's not about what's best for that person. So that's an example of pushing away. Um, what we can also do is, is pull people towards us in, in problematic ways. I'm going to make multiple clarifications in this section, so please bear with me, all right? Um, what we can do is use our relational power that we might have in our family or in our friendships to enforce Christian stuff on people who don't want it. Uh, maybe you want to put pressure on someone to get their kids baptised. Maybe you put pressure on them to come to church at Good Friday, just a few days away, something like that. You know. Now, I'm not saying, please, please hear me very clearly, first clarification, I'm not being critical of invitation. In fact, heartfelt invitation is the best. So if you've got a few people you've been sharing your faith with coming up this Friday and they haven't been seen that interested but you want them to have a good Friday service or Easter Sunday, that could be really good for them to come along. And you went to them and you said, look, I know you're sceptical about church. I know you, maybe you come once and you didn't like it or you know, whatever the case. I know that. But I just wanted to, I want to invite you again because I believe that Christianity is true. It's and I just think if you were to have an encounter with God and you were to be able to see what I know and, and see what I see, then that would be the best thing that could ever happen in your life. And I just want to give you the opportunity to come and possibly have that happen. And uh, you know, at Easter we talk about the heart of what Christians believe and I just want to invite you again to come along. Heartfelt invitation, excellent. That sort of thing, I encourage you to do that this week. What's not helpful is if you ask them in a way that implies or makes clear that they will suffer in some way if they don't accept the invitation. You know? And that might be as simple as, I'm going to be grumpy with you all Christmas Day if you don't come to the Christmas Eve service. You know? Or you know, something, it can be simple stuff like that, it can be very subtle, but we want people to be coming to a Christian thing, a Christian event, because of a heartfelt, love-based invitation, not grudgingly or out of obligation because you've used the power in that relationship to, to manipulate it into happening. Again, I don't think anyone became a, a Christian because someone from church down the road got grumpy with them. It doesn't work that way. Now, I want to make a clarification on this point, another clarification on this point. is When I'm talking about this, I'm talking about adult to adult. I do think things change a little bit when it comes to parents and children. I think if you have two Christian parents in the family, then those parents are required to insist that their children participate in the life of the church in one way or another. So um, th this is because uh, once I become an adult, it's different, you know. And I guess when do we become an adult in Australia? 18 or 21? Bit of debate about that, but you know. Whatever your case, whenever they become an adult, that's when they make their own decisions. But before that, parents are responsible for their children. And so if a kid was to say, I don't want to go to school, then I imagine most parents would say, you have to go to school even though you don't want to because school is important. You'd probably even do it for something like a sports team commitment. Oh, I don't want to go and play this morning. You go, oh, we've made a family commitment to this team. We need to go. 
The same is for church. You know, that if, if we are a Christian family, again, if both parents are in agreement on that, then this is something that we do together. This is something that you have to do, even if you're saying at the moment you don't want to. Now again, there should be a compelling love-based reason given for that. It shouldn't be, because I told you so, get in the car. It should be, this is important for our family, explain why church is important, understand that, yeah, maybe you don't want to go today, but we still want to do it. Um, and now, for those of you who are in the, the uh, you know, you're not an adult yet, so you're in the child category, uh, and you live here today, I just want to say this to you. If you don't want to go to a church thing and your parents are making you, it's highly unlikely that they're making you go just to annoy you. Like that is very, very unlikely. I guess it's vaguely possible, but most likely they want you to participate in this, in this church stuff because they believe church is really important. And what we talk about here at church, in particular when we talk about Jesus, is really important. So at the very least, I would say that, yeah, you might be annoyed about it or you yeah, might go, oh, I don't want to go today or whatever, but just give your parents a bit of a break and go, they're probably doing it for the, from the right motivations, even if you're disagreeing with the, the decision. Here's my summary, right? When, when, we, when we are disappointed with people who reject what we believe, we need to make sure we don't push them away, we don't, want to make sure we don't force them to come close, because that's not going to help. It's not going to lead them to Jesus. It's not going to bring them into a relationship with him. And that's why I think mourning is so important. Mourning well is so important. Because if we do that well and if we, if we grieve the situation, if we come to grips with our own disappointment and if we talk to God about our own disappointment, we'll be much, much less likely to do those problematic things that I've been talking about. We'll also be able to hold on to hope more easily, I think. And Jesus does often hope, right? Because as much as he... Um, expressed his disappointment with the people uh, of Jerusalem. And, he, and as I said, he let it all hang out. He was very sort of public about this disappointment. He then moved towards them anyway. And he was prepared to endure, endure suffering and endure death to get the message through that he loved them. And I actually find the book of Acts to be really encouraging and maybe you'd like to read this in the next couple of weeks. Read the book of Acts because this is all after Jesus died. And a whole bunch of people who had previously rejected Jesus, probably some people who were at his execution celebrating that he died, start to go, hang on, there might be more to this. They hear about the resurrection, the Holy Spirit starting the church, and Jesus has sent the Spirit, and things are happening. And thousands of Jewish people become Christians and accept Jesus. Thousands of people from the city who had rejected him become followers of Jesus, and they start the church that we are now a part of 2,000 years later. So that I, get, I take a lot of hope from that, that someone can be standing there celebrating the death of Jesus and then to be, you know, that things can change. And actually Paul, who wrote big slabs of the New Testament, uh, was one of those people. You know, he organised the execution of Christians. He hated Christians, and then he became one of the most famous of all time. There are thousands of people becoming Christians around the world every day. There are hundreds of millions of Christians in the world at the moment. We should take a lot of hope from that. Uh, people coming to faith from all different sorts of backgrounds. There is a lot of hope for us when it comes to sharing our faith. 
And so I want to just move in towards the end here. Let's talk practically about how can we hold on to that hope. What can we do to participate in that hope on a sort of day-to-day basis? Uh, the very best thing we can do is to commit to pray for people to become Christians, to convert to Christianity is sort of the buzzword that you might use. Um, that's why during this series we have, we're giving out these cards. So you might have got one of these last week. The series is called Lost. And it's called Lost because we're talking about people who don't know Jesus. So they're not lost in the sense that they've lost the plot or, you know, like they're terrible people and, you know, uh, so on. But the fact that we believe that you're not truly home until you're in a relationship with Jesus. So if you don't have that relationship, in that way you're spiritually lost. And so what we're encouraging you to do is to write the names of people in your life who you have interactions with who are in that category and to, to pray for them. Put this card somewhere where you're going to see it regularly. That will remind you to pray for them and ask God to help those people to become Christians. Um, bishop Sandy Miller said, uh, he's an Anglican bishop from uh, England, said this about prayer and how it interacts with sharing our faith. The New Testament lays a greater strength on prayer than it does on the evangelization of people. Evangelization is telling people about Jesus. There is a deeper need to pray than there is even for people to be converted. And I don't say that lightly because there is a fierce need for conversion. But conversions won't happen unless we are praying. And the Bible says that from the beginning, sorry, says that from the beginning to the end. It's a very important challenge for us to take on as a church. I know there's some very encouraging prayer initiatives that are happening and you'll be hearing about those in the next few weeks. Different opportunities for us to pray together and you've got this opportunity to pray in your own time, anytime, um, and with the card as a reminder. Praying for people is much more effective than pushing them away or pulling them close. It's very effective. And actually, I would challenge you to find someone who's become a Christian who didn't have someone praying for them hardcore in the lead up to that. I reckon we probably maybe wouldn't be able to find someone in that category. Prayer is very important. The other thing that's really valuable and helps us hold on to hope is sacrificial loving action. And we have no better example of this than Jesus going to the cross, right? Um, and come along, on, if you're not familiar with the sacrifice and what all that achieved, Good Friday is the service for you. Come along on Friday. We're going to talk about it the whole time. Uh, but I want to give you a simple story from my life which I think it's nowhere near as dramatic or as life and death as what Jesus did, but it's perhaps a practical example of how you could, something simple you might be able to do. So when I was a teenager, um, I, my parents were Christians, but I didn't like church at all. And I started a campaign for me to be excused from all church activities, which my parents rejected. <laughs> they didn't make me go to all church activities. I said, you don't have to go to the extra stuff, but Sundays, we're all going. Uh, and so... I was very annoyed about that. And I continued my campaign, uh, but mum and dad stuck to their guns. But I also remember this. Like, that, that was very annoying, and we had a few shouting matches about it. But I also remember this. And mum and dad said, but if you ever want to engage in any of the extra stuff, if you want to go to a youth event, a youth camp, if you want to catch up some people, with some people from church, uh, and we'd started going to a new church that had, more, had actual people my age, because the previous church had none, um, you know, then, then we'll make that possible. We'll pay for the camp, we'll, we'll drop you off, we'll pick you up. doesn't matter how late that event finishes, how late that catch-up finishes, we will pick you up. Um, uh, you know, we'll call ahead and we'll ask the details on your behalf if you're nervous about that sort of thing. Uh, there was two services. There was a morning service and an evening service. 
Um, the evening service had more people my age, so Dad would go to church twice on a Sunday so that I could go. It was quite a long drive uh, for us at that point. I'm pretty sure that was, the service was not his preferred style. <laughs> but, uh, and he had no people, there was no one his age, so it wasn't like he had peers he was looking forward to hanging out with on Sunday night. But every Sunday he would drive me to that service. To make, and, and what happened there was they told me why it was important to them that I was participating in church and then they showed it in their actions and their willingness to give up their time and, and so on and not just fit me in around them but to actually make me the priority when it came to my faith. So, yeah, I don't think I went to a single youth event uh, but <laughs> in my time as a teenager, I'm a youth minister now, <laughs> so you see how that works out, but that stands out to me. And I'll tell you this, people sure do take notice of your faith when you put your words into action. And again, I, I would challenge you to find someone who's become a Christian who didn't see somebody who is a follower of Jesus putting their words into action. I reckon it would almost be a 100% situation. All right, let's wrap up. If you're a Christian for long enough, you will become disappointed at some point with somebody who rejects what you believe. Probably multiple people. I would encourage you to talk to God about it and let him know how you feel. I'd encourage you to imitate Jesus and get emotional about it. Let it all hang out in public if necessary. Because when you do that, you're imitating the one that we follow. I would also encourage you to never forget what Jesus did next that after he mourned, he picked himself up and he entered the city that was rejecting him, dying to give them the chance of forgiveness. And when we show love to someone who rejects our beliefs, we'll be imitating Jesus then too. Let me pray. Father God, we just want to acknowledge our disappointment in different situations. It'll be different for everyone here. We just take a moment to Acknowledge that disappointment now. Please help us to mourn well. Use the rest of our service uh, to, to work with us on that. Please bring us to a place where um, not that our disappointment is forgotten, but that it won't be expressed in bitterness or resentment or just unhelpful responses. And Lord, give us hope. We hope that our church will grow with people who don't know you coming to know you. We don't pray this because we want to get bigger, because we want to, I don't know, be a massive church or whatever. We pray it because it'll be really good for them. The best thing that can happen to anyone is to know your love and we want our friends and our family the people we bump into to know your love like we do and so we can't make that happen we need you to be leading the way we can participate but ultimately that's up to you so we invite you to do that and I encourage you just in your head to name the people who right now are on your heart to know God's love
Lord, we pray that all these people will come to know your love. And please give us the opportunity to continue to share in good and helpful ways. Amen.